I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. from Luke chapter 14. Whosoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able, with 10,000, to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? 
It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. Then thrown it, they throw it away. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. God? Thanks be to God. Amen. So we are in week three of our series entitled Midterms. Uh, we are not talking about the midterm elections at all, uh, at all, even though it happened this week. Thanks be to God, that's over. All right. uh, but we are talking about those midterms of life, those midterms, be, uh, the, be, those year-to-year midterms, those places in between, one year to the next, that, where we just feel like we're kind of hanging in that space and we don't know what's next for our lives, those season of life to season of life type of midterms. And last, last week we talked about family and, ha- and kind of our obsession with family and what's next for our family. The week before that we talked about money and how money always ends up being the central conversation and all the midterms of life. What, what, how are we going to pay for this? What's next? And so um, today we're going to talk a little bit about work. So every year in June, in June, about 3,000 United Methodists descend on uh, Roanoke or Hampton. It happens every two years in different places uh, in order to do the work and or, to order the life of the Virginia Conference of the United Methodist Church. And this is a thing that I have to go to every year in June. Um, normally, this thing is something that I look up on the horizon and go like, oh, it's going to be an, another one. It's just as not, not interesting as it was the year before. Um, but this year, there's a possibility I'll be ordained, so that actually is like, I'll, I'll look forward to it, when it when that, if that happens. Um, or I won't if it doesn't happen, so we'll see. Uh, but we descend on Roanoke or Hampton to do the ordering work of the church. And on the last day of this conference, where we have made, we voted on administrative and ideological matters for the church over these three days, on the last day of this conference, we gather to do the oddest order of business that any organization has ever done. We gather together and the bishop stands up and after we have sung some hymns and you know that Here I Am, Lord, was one of those hymns, without a doubt, what we sang earlier today. It's like the Methodist anthem. Uh, And so we sing some hymns together and the bishop stands up on the last day and says, okay, brothers and sisters, I am getting ready to send you out to do the work of the church. And some pastors, I'm sending you back to the same place I've sent you the last few years, and others of you, I'm sending you to a a new place of ministry. Usually about 150 pastors uh, in Virginia are sent to somewhere new, are moved around to different churches. And she reminds us that she's sending us out, that the Holy Spirit is sending us out um, to be what it means to be a Christian in the life of the church. And all 150 names are read by our district superintendents, and all 150 names of the churches that they're being sent to are read. And then the bishop gives us what is the greatest pep talk of all time. Same pep talk we get every single year. You go now into all the world, into your community, all the world, into your communities in Virginia, um, to make disciples for Jesus Christ, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit. Um, name of the, well, There's a son in there too. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we stand together and we extend our arms in blessing to those who are going to new churches and we pray over them. And then we sing together again and we sing them out into their new churches. And I just stand back and I think, Man, I work for the strangest company on the face of the planet. 
I mean, like, I don't know how IBM does it <laughs> or Deloitte or, like, how do they send their employees into new places of work? I wonder how, I'm going mean, to guess they're not, like, it's not this way. Like, hey, you're going, hey, you're going to, to Tokyo now, and we're all going to stand up and sing you out into Tokyo. Um, I'm guessing that doesn't happen anywhere else. So I get that when I'm about to talk about work, that I happen to have a really kind of strange job where I'm always talking about the meaning of this thing. We're always talking about the meaning of this thing. Where many of you might feel like you can't quite discern the meaning in your work. Not long ago, I was in a batteries plus trying to get my clicker pusher fixed for my car uh, and I mean, you know what's at bat? What do they sell at Batteries Plus? Batteries, right? Um, batteries of all kinds. And so I walk in and I become really overwhelmed by how many batteries there are. It is, it's pretty amazing. And and so they and they they there's a plus too. They sell fancy light bulbs as well. Um, <laughs> But, but there are batteries for everything in that place. And as I walked throughout the store, I started to think about all that those batteries did. All of the random people who need batteries for random or seemingly random things. And so in awe of, in awe of this place, um, I'm waiting for them to fix my clicker pusher. And so I'm trying to strike up conversation with the people behind the counter. I'm like, this must be the greatest place to work. And they're like, this place is horrible. Oh my gosh, you, like, it's the worst job ever. I'm like, no, no, no. Like, you guys, you don't get it. Like, just think of what you get to do here. They're like, yeah, I know, we sell batteries. Like, obviously someone had given them a hard time for working at Batteries Plus, but I'm like, no, 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 you don't get it. Like, you don't just sell batteries. Yeah, I know, we sell light bulbs too. <laughs> and, no, no, you're missing the point entirely. You guys, you guys sell the gift of hearing. People come in needing a battery for their hearing aid and you give them, you, you give them the gift of hearing and people come in needing batteries for their flashlights and their kids are in the dark and they're scared and you give them hope and light. <laughs> you save lives, you put batteries in smoke detectors. And they're like, no, seriously, like, I have your, your clicker pushers done. Will you just go check this with your car? And, and I'm, like, trying to, like, invigorate them with their own great commission, right? Like, this pep talk to get you out into, into the world like we receive when we're being sent out to our churches. And they weren't impressed by this at all. Um, but no matter, no matter what it is that... that, that that we're doing, no, no matter, work can become a little bit like selling batteries. And I know this, and I hear you all talk about it. Um, I, I hear you talk about the kind of mundanity, the, the, the everyday-ishness of it. Uh, I believe, but I believe, I believe that even in that meaninglessness, I believe in everything that we do, no matter how varied it is, we have this opportunity to really do more than what meets the eye. What happens, though, over time is that we get caught in the minutiae of what we do. Just, we're just selling batteries. We're just balancing budgets. We're just 
auditing expenses, we're just editing government documents, etc., etc., and our work starts to feel meaningless. And then our work <laughs> seems meaningless. When it seems meaningless, it starts to affect how we value ourselves, and it starts to affect how we value others. And after walking with you folks, many of you, in all kinds of jobs for a while, I, I find that it really is true that we allow what we do to define who we are after some time. For, for people who, uh, who are out of work, the hardest thing for those who are out of work is not finding a new job. It's that devaluation they feel because they don't have something to do. When, when we don't feel valuable in what we're doing, we begin to think of ourselves as less valuable than we are, and this is how we, we begin to value each other and we begin to, to value people based on what they make and those who stay at home and find value in that but make no money from it, we, we begin to value them less. And, and this is how we value each other. That, this value in community plays out when we put value in what we do over who we are. When our work is meaningless and we don't seem to be making any money, it, it becomes a way of valuing ourselves. And so it's a problem, and it's a problem that Jesus addresses quite often in Scripture. Um, Jesus addresses this, this equation that we make, that what we do uh, is, is who we are, uh, and, and Jesus flips it on its head. And so all throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus trying to convince us over and over again, aiming for us to get this main point Jesus is trying to give, that, that what we do does not equal our value. Rather, it is God who gives us the value to do what we do. Does that make sense? What we do does not give us our value, but it is God who gives us the value to do what we do. Said another way, we we are who we are, not because of what we do, but, because, but we do what we do because of who we are, right? I know you know this, but over and over and over again, Jesus tries to get this through to us because the people in Jesus' time didn't get it either. You are the children of the Father, Jesus says, over and over again, telling us our identity. You are the branches to the vine. You're not the vine. You are the soil. You are the soil, I am the harvester, over and over again. And it begins for Jesus with who we were created to be, who God created us to be. And I, I believe that God has given us abilities, and many of us, sometimes we call these spiritual gifts, these abilities that we have, that God has given us the ability to do something. And yes, other people can do it too, I get that, but we are uniquely gifted for this time and place to live out that way of being. And, and we've been put in opportunities to use these gifts. Our calling, I believe, is, is not the capital C calling, like, like Noah being called to build an ark, but our, our everyday calling, that calling with a little c, comes when we bring our ability into any and every opportunity there is. And so, in fact, Jesus had this, this great passage about this, and this is the one we read this morning, um, one that we, we read often. Uh, so Jesus says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? 
It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. They throw it away. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. Salt is good. Salt has a purpose. Now, I'm not an expert on salt by any means, um, but I learned a lot about it this week. So I know two things about salt only before coming to this, this um, to learn about this. Salt is salty, and it, I like it because it makes my food taste better. Um, however, I, I've, never, I've never tasted salt that's not salty. Have you? Have you ever tasted salt that's not salty? Okay. But Jesus says, what good is salt that has lost its saltiness? That is a bizarre question. A very bizarre question from Jesus. And so there's multiple ways that we could read this. And so the first way is the simple way, the way that we probably read it all along. Um, the first way is that it's a metaphor. And, and what Jesus is saying is salt, salt's purpose is to be salty. Therefore, if it is not salty, then what good is it? That's, that's an, it's an easy way to read it. But there's another interpretation that I've read about this week a lot that Jesus is actually joking here. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, I, I don't, it's not funny. It's very, it's very gentle, gentle humor from Jesus, very gentle. Um, I know y'all thought it was hilarious. Uh, so when we read it, we're supposed to think of it a little bit like a joke that, um, again, salt that's lost its saltiness really doesn't exist, right? This is like a sarcastic remark from Jesus, and I, I, I would like to say I have the spiritual gift of sarcasm, and so I like when Jesus speaks in sarcasm. I resonate with it. And so where does salt get its saltiness? It, it just is. It just is. Its saltiness is inherent to the salt. It, it gets it by whatever process, sodium and chloride come together. I don't know that chemistry stuff. That's what makes salt salty. That's what gives its, its flavor, and so it's inherent to the thing. If salt ceases to be salty, it ceases to be. Jesus is saying that inherent in us is who we are. Our saltiness comes not from being sprinkled. Our saltiness is inherent in us from the very beginning. God has built this identity in us as the children of God. And we don't get our identity and value as children of God when we do something worthwhile, like season. If we, we, if we can come to understand our identity as children of God, who God has made us to be, the, the things, the abilities, the gifts that God has given us, the things with which we've been equipped if, if we can bring those things to bear and in every opportunity we walk into, we can begin to experience this calling, this fresh calling from God. Instead, we allow what we do to define us. And I think this is what has led, this doesn't just happen in individual lives. This happens, this has happened in the church. I, I think that um, the church has gotten so busy being concerned about what we do, that we have forgotten who we are. And so I, I promised you all that I would give you an update on where we are on a very, very important conversation in the life of the United Methodist Church. For those of you who are brand new with us today, this might be a lot to consume. 
and I, and I, I know that, um, but this is something I feel like I owe you all. The United Methodist Church for about 40 years has been in this conversation, this, this struggle over the, the topic of human sexuality. Um, and we uh, have people across the spectrum, and mainly the two big questions that we're asking are, can, um, will we marry um, homosexual persons in the church, and honestly, I have to say homosexual and not LGBTQ because that's not even the word in there. We don't have, we have, a, I don't even know if we've gotten that far yet in the conversation, which is sad. Um, and then, or, and will we ordain them as well? Will we ordain them? And this is a, honestly, the church is split 50-50 down the middle on this now, um, and especially in the United States, we are, um, we are at a breaking point um, in, the United, in the United States. Many other denominations have already split over this conversation. They have. Um, so like Presbyterians and Lutherans, um, Episcopals, they've already had this conversation. The reason why we have not yet had this conversation is because we are much larger of a denomination than all of these are. We are the United Methodist Church is second to the Southern, like the Southern Baptist Coalition. Besides the, the Baptist Church, we are the second largest Protestant denomination. And we are global. We span across the world. And so if you know anything about our brothers and sisters in Africa, you know they are not even close to having this conversation. So what does it mean to, have, to be at this breaking point in the United States and have a worldwide church that is in a completely different place. And so this conversation is coming to a head this year. This February, the United Methodist Church will gather, much like what we do in Roanoke and in Hampton, except the worldwide United Methodist Church will gather um, and in St. Louis, and it's a conference specifically about the topic of human sexuality. It's about four days, and at the end of that, we are expecting that there will be a decision made that will possibly um, split our denomination. It is a sad thing. Um, I, I say sad beca um, because there is beautiful global work that we do in our church um, that but this is also really important. And I, you know, it's a very strange place to be for the church. Um, so I would like to play a video that's about 10 minutes for you all um, with the person in our conference who is the most well-versed in this conversation to give you a little history and to give you where we are. But before we do that, he's gonna start talking and he's gonna start talking related to these four places. In the United Methodist Church, we find ourselves, he says that these are about where we find everybody in the church currently in these four categories. In the category, so in the center, you have progressive compatibilists and traditional compatibilists. These are people, the progressive compatibilists, I would call my, I would put myself in that category. Someone who believes that, that, that believes in, in, in ordination and, and marriage as being things that we should offer to those who are, um, that I'm willing to participate in, to those who, uh, to the LGBTQ community. Traditional compatible would be someone who does not believe that, but both are people who would still be willing to, to be in the same church as other people who don't think like them. There's a sense of unity there. So I value the unity of being in a church with someone who may not agree with me on my opinion. Then the two on either side are progressive non-compatibilists and traditional non-compatibilists. Uh, and so those are, um, you, those are pretty obvious. They do not believe that they can embody the gospel by being in church with people who don't, don't agree with them on this topic. And so these are the four places. And so I'm going to play a video, and I know that Zach's going to get it ready. Um, we're going to turn off the light. 
Uh, and and I, I just want you to hear um, Tom Berlin talk about this a little bit, and it'll come back to our sermon, I promise. This is an attempt to simplify but not be simplistic. Okay, so I understand that not every one of you are going to feel like you fall into one of these categories. But related to human sexuality, and for the purposes of this conversation, let's just talk about two issues. How do you feel about same-sex marriage in the church? How do you feel about the ordination of persons who are homosexual? Those are the only two things I'm talking about when I say human sexuality in this context. Most of us fall into one of these four categories, and this is what the conversation ensued, because when we got into that meeting with people on the left and people on the right and those of us who are in, the, in between, we made an, an instant decision. We said, we're not going to try to convince each other to change our minds. We're going to accept where we are and talk about where we're headed as a church. And, and we realize that most of us fall in one of these categories. On the, on the right, there are traditionalists. They like the traditional stance of the church around those two issues. But some traditionalists are what are called non-compatibilists. They don't want to be in a church with people that, that, whose views differ from them. They feel so strongly about this issue because for them it's an interpretation of the authority of Scripture, it's an interpretation ar around what they believe to be true uh, around sexual ethics and about personal holiness. You don't have to agree with them, but it's helpful if you understand where they come from. They, they don't attempt to be wounding, but they feel it so strongly that sometimes to those who are on the left, it is wounding. Then there are people that are next to them that are traditionalists who are compatibilist. And what that means is they hold traditional views around human sexuality, but they can live in a church where not everybody agrees and where practices can differ. They can live in a church where church A might offer a same-sex marriage, but the church they serve, church B, won't. They can live in a world where a pastor could perform an off-site same-sex marriage, but it wouldn't be done in the sanctuary. You see what I'm saying? They, they're traditionalists. They have their views, but they're compatibilists. They can be compatible with people they disagree with. Now, there are also people that are more progressive. That's, that is to say they would like to see the, the view on these two matters change but many of them are compatibilists. They understand that some of their friends are traditionalists, and they don't agree necessarily. But we can live together, is what they would say. Because they have a value, these two groups have a value around the unity of the church as you find it in the Gospel of John. Now, I would argue that everybody has a value around that because it's a biblical value. But for some, these issues are so strong that they are willing to, to live separately, live apart based on it. Now, on the, on the far left-hand side, there are progressives who are non-compatibilist. And what that means is they feel so strongly about these two issues, about marriage and ordination, that they would just, they're just to a place where they're, 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 it's an issue of justice for them. So they also have a scriptural viewpoint and a scriptural reference point, but it is a reference point of justice and equity in Jesus' ministry to those who are on the margins, who, who often feel that they're not included. And so what they, they look across this divide and they say, how can you interpret the Scripture and not see the justice of Christ? And the people over here say, how can you interpret the Scripture and not see what it says plainly around the actions around homosexuality? And that's where the argument is. And to my experience, when I was in this room talking to people that were on both sides of the spectrum, friends, nobody is going to suddenly say, wow, you're right. 
<laughs> I, and my point is, it's not that we haven't thought thoroughly. It's that we have fundamental disagreements. And the question is, can these groups all get together? Now, here's where in the United Methodist context, because you know what? The United Methodists, we are the broad center. The vast majority of us, if, we, if I got everybody in this thing to, to go to four quadrants that would define where you are, which I'm not going to do, thank you. But, but if, if I did that, most of us would fall in those two center areas. Most of us are compatibilists. And, and by the way, those that are non-compatibilists, that's why those of us who are compatibilists look at you and just like, would you stop talking? Like, I just, we're tired. We're just tired of talking. You know, just figure out how to get along. And the folks on the edges are like, wow, you, you're so compromising of the fa You know, you're just trying to always make it work. And, and, and that's why, listen, don't you feel like a lot of energy has been expended on this? Yeah, there is a feeling of weariness and exhaustion around this. Mm -hmm. And yet, and yet, these are identity issues. These are not trivial issues. These issues affect our children. They affect our friends. They affect us. And so we can't trivialize it. And even though we're weary with the argument, we've got to stick with it because we're talking about people's lives. So next slide, please. What we'd like to believe is that the Book of Discipline binds us all together and we're all going to be fine. Next slide, please. <laughs> We, we'd like to believe that the Book of Discipline has a, a magnetic field that holds us all together and we'll all just keep the Book of Discipline. But the problem is in recent years, United Methodists, clergy and laity alike, are tired of keeping, holding the Book of Discipline when they believe it is a justice issue. And so, next slide please. On the left-hand side of the spectrum, on the progressive side, people have gotten out of bounds with the Book of Discipline. Clergy have said, you know what, I'm going to do the marriage. We've had that happen in Virginia. And listen, I know the individuals who have done those, those marriages. They are good and decent clergy. They're effective clergy. But they have justice issues around this. And so when that happens, and we've got annual conferences now getting out of bounds related to ordination. And, and now people are saying, and the bishops are upholding it. And it makes the folks on the right-hand side very frustrated. And the folks on the right-hand side, um, next slide, please, say, you know what? Whenever you all get out of bound, our packet leaks. The clergy that serve churches that have a dominant ideology around these issues, they, they look at you and they say, look, every time somebody does a same-sex marriage in New York, or the annual conference in New York does this, I leak people in Texas. Because our people read the magazines, they read the newspapers, and the Book of Discipline is supposed to bind us. So now the issue is no longer what the Book of Discipline says, it's what we do. It's no longer sufficient for the folks on the right to just say, look, it's not just about the wording of the book, it's about whether we practice what the book says. And so next slide, please. Even the traditionalists that are compatibilists will say, you know what, we're losing members too, just not at the same rate as those churches that are described as traditionalist non-compatibilist. Are you with me so far? Okay, so this is a part of the issue. Next slide, please. And so what happened at General Conference this year is we had a couple proposals that said, hey, let's, let's make it more stringent. If a clergy person does a marriage of a same-sex couple, 
they're out for one year. We're going to call that a just resolution, and if they do it twice, they're gone. We pull their credentials. Now, the, the um, court, the higher court of the church, which I cannot remember the name of. Judicial Council. Yeah, that, the Judicial Council, thank you. The, the Judicial Council, it, it said, it came back and said, hey, you can't do that. If you predefine it, it's not a just resolution. So all that legislation got thrown out. But the presence of that legislation tells you that the folks on the right are saying, we're going to draw hard boundaries and we're going to get people's behaviors in line with the Book of Discipline. But here's the problem. Next slide. What the folks on the left say is when you make it so stringent, we leak people. Our people are walking away. Because our people, uh, you know, I, I had dinner, I had lunch with a pastor from a highly progressive church, and she said, I'm losing people. I had dinner Sunday night at General Conference with a, a clergy person who is connected to a lot of churches that are very traditionalist. And, and some that are non-compatible, he said, our people are losing people. It's very important for you to see this, because if we're going to ever have a decent conversation around this as United Methodists, we must develop empathetic responses to each other that are not always about human sexuality as a place to wound each other. We've got to think about, if we're going to have unity in the life of the church, how are we going to have unity in the life of the church? Next slide, please. Because even the progressives that are compatibilist are losing people. Last weekend, okay, 10 days ago, I got an email from a member who said, I have a son who is gay, and I can't believe you didn't do more for us at General Conference. Thank you very much, Pastor. I was expecting more of the United Methodist Church for my son. Now, they haven't left, but they're not happy. About three days later, I got a series of emails from a member who said, Tom, you've become so liberal, I can't be in the church anymore. That's fascinating. That's the beauty of being a centrist. No one likes you. It's just, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. I, I mean, it's just, I'm a, I, I am, listen, if I put myself in this category, I am a progressive compatibilist. That, that's who I am. You can like me, you can dislike me for that, but that's who I am. And, and my children don't even like me half the time for that. Here's the I real mean, problem. The real problem was what David Domasey showed you this morning. What did the worship attendance do in the Virginia Annual Conference last year? What was the rate of decline of worship attendance? Anybody remember? Friends, if you don't remember that number, you don't get it. That was the singular most important piece of information that was presented to you this morning, and Tom Berlin's opinion. Why? Because we had a 4% decline, and for the first time in anybody's memory, we dipped below a million United Methodists showing up on Sunday morning. And if you don't get up every morning as a pastor or as a layperson and say, my goodness, does it matter that less people are worshiping Christ in a United Methodist context? Does that matter? And if the answer is no, it doesn't matter, then how, why on earth would you sit in folding chairs for three days? <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, it, it's, and look, it's, it's not about the growth of the church until it is. It's not about decline or numbers until it is until we can't pay salaries, until we can't do mission work, and until our churches are shutting down. And the truth is, 
1974, we had 3,621,000,000 United Methodists, approximately, and in 2010, we had about 3,054,000. This is from Don House, who's the economist who works with the General Commission on Finance Administration. And Don believes in 2050, if the current trends continue, next slide, we'll have under a million United Methodists in, in America. Now, I've been hearing from clergy and lady alike for years, numbers don't matter. Numbers don't matter. It's not about the numbers. It's not a numbers game. And you're right, it's not a numbers game. It's a people thing. It's a human beings relating to Christ. It's human beings coming into a salvific relationship with Christ that transforms their life in this time, in this day. And that's what our local churches should be focused on. And that's what we should get up and say, I'm going to give my whole best life to that effort. Because our biggest problem is not human sexuality. Our biggest problem is a lack, of, a lack of vitality in the local church. And it's not that traditionalists, non-compatibilists have got all the good numbers and the progressives don't. That's not true. It's, it's your view on human sexuality is not a predictor of the vitality of your congregation. As somebody um, else uh, moves, turns the lights on for me. Thank you. So the point that, this is the point I was trying to make, and, and I, I need to talk with you about this because I know that you all are going to see it in the news. This will hit CNN when these decisions are made. It will. And it's going to look really horrible on the United Methodist Church when it happens. It's going to. And, um, and people are leaking from the church because of it. And the number one issue is not human sexuality. The number one issue is church vitality and more people receiving and knowing um, the love of Jesus Christ in their lives. And I think that, that's, and so why did I connect it to work today? Uh, because uh, we've forgotten the inherent saltiness of who we are as the church. We've forgotten our initial call. We've forgotten, and so we get wrapped up in these kind of debates uh, and we've forgotten who we are. It, should, it shouldn't actually even be a hard conversation if we remember who God has called us to be. Um, and so I'm inviting you all, as I put prayer on the, um, up here, will you please, as a church, be praying with me for what's happening in, in February? Like, I'm tempted to not even share it with you all. I was tempted to, because it's heavy and it's a lot, but I don't want your, the first time you to hear it be on, uh, on the news. I don't want that to be the first time. This is it's a matter of who the church is and our identity and where we are moving forward as a church. We, we owe it. We owe it to people to be open and inclusive, and to move into this new direction. So if you would be praying with me for all people involved, everyone involved, everybody's heart, I would be grateful. Would you pray with me now? God, thank you for, uh, for calling us together as a community, for being willing to, to wrestle with, with how you are moving in, in the church, how you are, are, are moving and, and changing, and how you... You breathe new life into everything you touch. You breathe new life, and there are new realizations we can have as church people, and we want to be a part of the church that is ahead because the church is losing people because of this. 
we have forgotten your mission. We've forgotten who you've called us to be. And so, God, we ask that you would open our hearts, our minds, and our churches up to a new way of thinking and believing and being so that we may be your church in the future. We pray this in the name of Jesus who, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.